0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Just a warning before we start. This episode contains some strong language and intense material. Spinning
2: by for Brisbane, couldn't take it. McRae there on hands and knees. Forces out the record Speaks one. Then another right foot
1: (laughs) step for 35. Don't tell me. Don't
2: tell me. Has he kicked that one? He has It's AFL grand final night, 2003.
3: And you shake. This prison
2: team is can I... Traditionally it's a night of revelry in Melbourne Britain, three in a row. But in the suburb of Oakley, two men have a very different plan for the evening. They're walking quietly down a tree-lined street. One is carrying a torch and they're both wearing dark clothing and beanies. They're breaking into a house to steal more than a million dollars worth of party drugs a neighbour sees the men break a porch light.
4: D24, Police Communications Centre, advised me of an incident at Dublin Street.
2: Detective Murray Gregor will later tell a Royal Commission he's on call during this hot burglary.
4: Hot burglary is something that's basically in progress.
2: Two police dog units are let loose in Dublin Street and the men begin to run. They throw bags of drugs over the back fence, presumably to come back for but they'll never get the chance. One man is caught trying to hide.
4: An offender named, not known at this stage, who is arrested hiding in a schoolyard.
2: The other man is brought down by a police dog biting into his calf.
4: Injuries result of dog bite and baton torch strike to head area.
2: To their surprise, the police realise that this man, who's been bitten by the dog, is a cop, a detective from the drug squad.
1: Four-year-old David Mitchell is charged with stealing ecstasy, LSD, and amphetamines from an East Oakley house in September.
2: Last when the news emerges year. that a cop has been arrested trying to steal drugs, all hell will break TV, loose. Was... The shockwaves from these events on Grand Final night will spread throughout the force, and eventually, years later, the fallout will see Nicola Gobbo's story exposed to the public. This is season two of Trace, The Informer. I'm Rachel Brown. The bungled burglary at Dublin Street and the events that follow are arguably the darkest days ever for Victoria Police and for Nicola Gobbo. As you'll hear, she's connected to virtually everyone involved in the Dublin Street burglary.
4: I think she was acting
3: for everybody, one way or another.
2: But a key witness will soon come under fire.
3: Nobody deserves to be shot in the fucking head.
2: And despite the danger... Nicola Gobbo will position herself in the centre of the action.
1: Was I accumulating information and on one level trying to impress people around me? Um, Yes, I was.
2: This is episode three, The Darkest Night. So the two people who broke into that drug house were a cop and a drug dealer. You need to know a bit about the drug dealer and his story, because he's at the centre of everything that happens next. His name? Terry Hodson. A carpenter by trade, he'd found a more lucrative business, selling cocaine and ecstasy. He sold the drugs from his family home in Melbourne's affluent eastern suburb of Kew. A long time at,
1: the Hudson's house. <laughs>
2: <laughs> at the back of the house, there was a big double garage, neatly lined with tools. With a BMW often parked inside. If his garage door was up, he was open for business. What for In this home video, he looks like a bit of an old school rocker shaggy hair, a cigarette always smouldering between his fingers.
1: That was it. What? What would you say? Get flopped. What having for tea, baby?
2: He jokes around in the kitchen with his childhood sweetheart and wife, Christine. He'd brought her over from central England, along with his thick accent. His family was the centre of his world. Christine, his kids, and grandkids.
3: look, look, look beautiful in yellow and red. Look, here, look, look look
2: Terry's son Andrew says his dad wasn't perfect by any means, but he was still dad.
3: I loved him. I idolised him. He was my go to person, if you like.
2: But in 2001, the happy home fractured. Two of Terry's kids, Andrew and his sister Mandy, were arrested on drugs charges. To help, Terry Hodson agreed to a trade. Mandy would walk free and he would supply information to police.
3: My father had turned and become an informer. He decided to turn informer to protect my sister, Mandy.
2: To criminals, becoming an informer, rolling, becoming a dog, it's one of the worst things you can do. And if the criminal world finds out, chances are you'll have a target on your head. Even Andrew, Terry's own son, still thinks rolling is abhorrent. He told my reporting partner, Josie Taylor, that he would never do it.
3: The bad things I've done, I've never brought anybody down with me. If I'm caught, I'm caught.
1: Then how does it feel to know your dad turned informer? You obviously still think that was the wrong
3: choice. I do not agree with that. I think it was a wrong choice. But you've got to remember, at the end of the day, he was my dad.
2: Terry and Christine Hodson were both signed up as police informers in September 2001. Terry led a double life for the next two years, dealing out drugs and intel. His contact in the police, his police handler, was a detective called Dave Meeschel, Terry would share information with him about what was going on in the underworld. But over time, it seems like maybe the cop, Mischel was drawn into the underworld because he and Terry developed a plan to rob a house together. Michel’s drug squad crew had been surveilling a house in Dublin Street, Oakley. It was a safe house for a huge stash of drugs and cash. Michel knew police were about to pounce, so he and Terry plotted how they could get in first. And that's how, on grand final night in 2003, Dave Mischel and Terry Hodson were caught in the middle of a break and enter. Terry Hodson was in so much shit. He'd been busted stealing drugs alongside a cop, And not just any drugs. A stash alleged to belong to the drug baron Tony Mockbell. Terry needed to find a friend, and fast. Luckily, his son Andrew knew a lawyer he trusted, Nicola Gobbo.
3: I adored her because she was always honest with me. But I was always honest with her. And when the questions came around, when I had to introduce my father to her and ask her, to represent my father over this burglary, I told her what I knew.
2: Nicola advised Terry as he pondered his next move. He didn't have many good options. He suspected he'd be pressured to testify against Michel, the cop he'd been arrested with. So Nicola teed up a meeting for Terry with Victoria Police's Ethical Standards Division, the ESD. That's the division that polices the police. The division that weeds out corruption. It took a lot for Terry to even get himself through the door. He was a jittery mess. He was scared, paranoid, and possibly drug affected. When he finally sat down with ESD detectives, Terry intimated he had more to give up than just Michel He didn't even want to say it. Instead, he told Detective Murray Gregor, using his hands.
4: My recollection is that Terry when asked were there other police involved in the burglary at Dublin Street, Terry indicated with three fingers, out, placed on the table, which indicated to me that it was a sergeant involved.
2: Three fingers, Murray Gregor told the ABC's Four Corners, as in the three stripes that sergeants wear on their shoulders. Mieschel's boss was a sergeant, a three striper, Sergeant Paul Dale. He was a big fish. And as Murray Gregor told the Royal Commission, Terry was scared of him.
4: He was concerned for, his, for his safety, uh, stated that a sergeant was involved in the burglary, intimated uh, that it was Sergeant Dale, stated that he had been threatened by Dale and Mitchell with the gesture that he and or his family would be killed if he uh, rolled.
2: The next day... Terry called ethical standards from a public phone. The officer who took the call read out his notes to the commission.
0: Incoming call, Terry Hodgson via a phone box. State of contacts being made by the three striper. Stick together, no need to get into bed with anyone.
2: In other words, Terry said he'd been told, hold your nerve, do not cooperate with police. But he did. He gave the police an explosive statement, alleging that the three of them had planned the burglary together. Terry Hodson, Dave Meischel and Sergeant Paul Dale. Terry's version of events is detailed in documents handed to the Royal Commission. He said the three of them sat down at an Italian restaurant, Romeo's in Turak, and they planned the whole thing. The break-in, the drug theft and the spoils they'd share. They were all charged with the Dublin Street burglary. All three of them were set to be in the dock together. In the months after the break-in, Terry Hodson feared that his days were numbered and he fessed up to his kids, telling them he'd been leading a secret life.
1: Dad had turned around and said that he was a police informer, that he'd made mistakes and that he was a dead man walking.
2: His daughter Nikki says her dad's informer
1: file had gone missing. Paul Dale and Dave Mischel used to have to get write down information what Dad was giving to them. All those
2: notes were in what's known as the blue file. It had been stolen from the drug squad soon after the burglary. It is not something that should be out in the open. It contained all the sensitive tidbits that Terry had fed police. In the underworld, it had be considered hard evidence that Terry was a snitch. But now the file was gone. And who knows whose hands it was in. Victoria Police had offered to put Terry and Christine into witness protection, but they wouldn't go without their children. It was one in, all in.
1: My brother and sister were on board and they wouldn't go unless I was going. And I'd only recently got married and had Dylan and I said, look, I'm not going. So they didn't go into witness protection and I live without guilt.
2: Well,
1: Nikki. it's not your fault, though.
2: No. On the 16th of May 2004, Nikki's sister Mandy decided to go and visit her parents because their phone had been ringing out. She walked up to a window at the back of the house. She told the ABC's Four
1: Corners what happened next. I saw my dad lying on the floor... With his, he was face down with his hands, and I just saw that he was tricking and pretending to be asleep on the floor. I went to say something, but then when I looked in through the, the security screen door that they had, I looked down and there was um, my mum lying next to him. And I thought, well, my mum wouldn't lie on the floor pretending to be asleep, and so I opened it up and I noticed the blood. Around my mum's head. So, <laughs> bent down to touch my mum. Yet she was as cold as a block of ice. I, just, I couldn't touch my dad, but I knew that he was dead as well. <laughs>
2: Terry and Christine Hodson had each been shot twice in the back of the head, at close range, while they were on their knees. One fired cartridge rested on the back of Terry's shoulder. Mandy ran out of the house. Her brother Andrew had just arrived too.
1: So I rushed out and screamed and said to my brother, they're dead, they're dead, someone's killed them.
3: Nobody deserves to be shot in the fucking head. Mm. My mother definitely did not deserve to be shot in the head. Mm. Right? Because we were brought up on a code. Women, children and the elderly are left out.
1: of a police informer and his wife over the weekend in Kew is already having an impact.
2: The police top brass were desperate to contain the fallout from the executions. The whole thing was a major embarrassment. One of their star informers had been killed and two of the major suspects were police detectives, Dave Mischel and Paul Dale. Less than 12 hours after the Hodson bodies were found, the detectives were arrested in pre-dawn swoops but after questioning, they were released. They both had alibis. The truth was, there were plenty of suspects. Too many suspects. The investigation was floundering and police badly needed fresh information. So they decided to call someone in for questioning who seemed to be connected to everyone. Nicola Gobbo. Grab a seat.
0: Nicola. let turn all the
2: phones off.
0: Yeah.
2: This interview tape was recorded at Homicide Squad headquarters in Melbourne.
0: Thanks for coming in, Nicola. Be aware that we we're going to video yeah. record what we're, what we're uh, discussing. Which I strongly object to, but
1: it doesn't matter.
2: Nicola Gobbo was used to being the lawyer, not the one in the hot seat answering the questions.
0: Are you, you know who Terry is?
1: Yeah, I acted for him. I know he's an informer.
2: The police officers wanted to know if Nicola had told anyone that Terry was an informer.
0: Are there other clients or other people that you have mentioned or said directly to or in passing to, Terry is a police
1: informer? I wouldn't say I've gone out of my way to ring people up and tell them. Yeah. But if someone asked me, yes.
2: Nicola takes a few times to answer the question.
1: But I would have told her who would have asked me?
0: Either way, who would have, as a result of speaking with you, become aware?
1: Um... I'll think about it. Oh, look, I mean, Andrew was one person. Mm. No idea. Uh, Mockbell, no. I mean, Mockbell was another.
2: But Nicola names a bunch of other people who knew too. She says a lot of people knew.
1: But it seemed to be common knowledge.
2: After about an hour and a half of questioning, the police let Nicola go. So,
1: uh, we'll hear
0: from you. Okay.
2: What will only emerge later is that Nicola has another surprising link to one of the suspects in this case.
0: Incoming call, Terry Hodson via a phone box.
2: The Royal Commission heard that before his death, Terry Hodson told the police his suspicions about Nicola in that cryptic phone
0: call. Stated contacts being made by the three-striper. Also advises that the blonde lady is sleeping with the three-striper.
2: Somehow, Terry suspected that the blonde lady, Nicola Gobbo, the lawyer he'd sought advice from, was sleeping with the sergeant that he'd just implicated in a burglary. It took a royal commission to establish once and for all that Nicola Gobbo and Paul Dale had slept together. Nicola admitted it was after a very big night.
1: I was blind uh, blind drunk to the point of uh, literally uh, blacking out for the second time in my entire life.
2: Paul Dale says they only slept together the once. Nicola says it was a few times. Either way, Nicola Gobbo concedes that it was inappropriate. But others saw something more sinister.
3: She was sleeping with Paul Dale all through. My father being charged with the drug house with Dave Mishall.
2: Terry Hodson's son Andrew is pretty blunt about what he thinks was going on. He told my reporting partner, Josie Taylor, that Nicola betrayed his family.
3: She was working both sides of the fence. If I'd have known at the time, phew, I wouldn't have taken my father anywhere near her.
1: Are you trying to say she knew that Dale was part of the burglary?
3: Is that yes, what? yes, yes? She knew that. Yep. She was trying to get information from my father, uh, from what my father was telling ESD, mm. to then pass on to him.
2: Cops at the Royal Commission said Terry Hodson shared much the same theory with them.
0: Hodson told you that he felt that Ms Gaube was quote, unquote, feeling him out uh, and trying to obtain information from him to pass on to Mr Dale, right?
2: Correct. So, the cops told Terry to try to turn the tables and find out information himself. Terry kept meeting up with Nicola to see if he could get information out of her. Sometimes, Andrew Hodson went along with his dad to these meetings.
3: So, I'd sit there and have lunch and listen to them, Hmm. have their conversations, And I straight away, right, as dumb as people thought I was, was never dumb.
2: He says it was almost comical how they were sizing each other up, trying to gauge just how much the other knew.
3: It was the way that they put Mm. their questions to each other, Mm. right? And it's like, hang on a minute. It's like watching a movie because it's all scripted. Oh, I just, oh, buggies. I'm going to eat my whatever I'm eating.
2: Nicola Gobbo says that she initially met up with Paul Dale at a pub because he wanted some informal legal advice. She admitted to the Royal Commission it was inappropriate. You've
0: been involved with Hodgson for you to meet with him. Uh, was completely uh, wrong as far as your role as a, uh, an officer of the court. Do you accept that? Um, yes, I
1: do. If, if, you're, if, if, in fact, it's simply him saying all I want is legal advice, yes, it is wrong.
2: Paul wanted the advice just in case he was charged, although he assured Nicola he didn't do it. But Nicola must have had her suspicions because she told the Royal Commission that she was in two minds as to what Paul's involvement was. And she said Paul Dale was nervous about Tony Mockbell.
1: Um, Dale wanted to know if Tony wanted to kill him because he'd burgled um, a place that belonged to Tony.
2: And in a statement, she said Paul was desperate to know whether he'd been implicated in the burglary by Terry. And she said she told Paul she didn't know. Nearly five years after the Hodsons were executed, police charged Paul Dale with murder, alleging he'd hired a hitman to kill them. Nicola Gobbo told the Royal Commission she was worried about how she'd be seen in all this.
0: Were you concerned that you might have been um, <clears throat> uh, implicated uh, in the murder of the
1: Hodsons? Yes. Over time, um, it became apparent to me that um, that. You know, it may be that someone or that there may be investigators or anyone else who might not believe that
2: I did not know. Investigators did become interested in Nicola Gobbo's meetings with Paul Dale. They were particularly curious about a boozy night in February 2004 at Crown Casino. The swirling suspicions around what happened that night are kind of complicated, but I want to take you through them because this is the closest Nicola comes to being investigated herself over all this. Before we get into it, it's also worth saying that these suspicions are kind of tenuous. The Royal Commission's heard two interesting things that might have happened that night. Both cast Nicola as a go-between for Paul and some of her most notorious clients. And both scenarios spelled potential danger for Terry Hodson. So, police suspicion number one. Paul passed Nicola the blue file. As you've heard, if this file, Terry Hodson's informer file, fell into the wrong hands, his life could be in danger. And police wondered if Paul had stolen it and deliberately leaked it by passing it to Nicola that night at the casino. But this suspicion really only rested on coincidental timing because police found the contents of that file on her client Tony Mockbell's fax machine the very next day. When I spoke to Nicola, I put this to her. What about the allegation that you passed a police file detailing his informer activities from Paul Dale, a man that was charged with Hodgson's murder, to Tony Mockbell?
1: Well, that's um, ridiculous.
2: Like she told those homicide cops, Many people had known the truth about Terry Hodson since 2002, long before his murder.
1: The whole world knew that he was an informer. The fact of him being a police informer was a matter which was revealed by senior police openly and transparently when they um, responded to requests for information on behalf of numerous people I acted for.
2: So basically she's saying word had got out via court documents. The lead investigator into the Hodson murders backs her up on this. Detective Sergeant Sol Solomon has told the Royal Commission it appears Victoria Police itself accidentally provided a confidential report identifying Terry Hodson as
1: a police informer to a Melbourne law firm
2: as part of a separate case.
1: So the suggestion that it was some tightly held secret um, is ridiculous.
2: Casino suspicion number two. Same night, gangland boss Carl Williams called Nicola and she passed her phone to a drunken Paul Dale.
1: Williams rang me and when um, Dale heard me answer the phone, he asked if he could speak to Carl and I handed him the phone.
2: That much, she confirms. This phone call was just the first of a volley of messages from Paul through Nicola to Carl. Nicola told the Royal Commission that in May 2004, she remembers them trying to set up a meeting.
1: My recollection is there was some conversation with one of them about where, it was either where Dale was going to be or where Williams was going to be on a particular day or a particular week, and they managed to find each other in that time.
2: Police were investigating whether Paul Dale was using Nicola as a conduit to reach Carl. And Carl was a guy who knew guns for hire. The coroner's court heard allegations that the two men met up at a building site to arrange the hit on the Hodsons. Just 10 days after that alleged meeting, the Hodsons were dead. But the underworld figures who pointed the finger at Paul Dale weren't the most trustworthy of characters. And with potentially scores of people aggrieved about Terry Hodson's informing, every criminal and his dog had a potential motive. When I interviewed Nicola Gobbo, I needed to ask her the obvious question about this whole thing, up front. Did you know the Hodson's were going to be murdered? Absolutely not. As she answers me, she has this stare that borders on disdain. It's a hard no. She didn't know it was going to happen but she says that it wasn't entirely unexpected.
1: The fact that he was murdered wasn't a great surprise. The method uh, or the way it happened, definitely um, appalling and shocking, but not surprising in the context of the way he was living his life prior to his murder. And I don't mean to speak ill of someone who's deceased, but, you know, he was, it was known that he was assisting police. He was a drug dealer who ratted
2: on other drug dealers. And he was a potential witness against two police officers. Nicola says he was a ticking time bomb.
1: I think there was a, I hate to use the expression, but a perfect storm of cock-ups and negligence by Victoria Police in terms of the way that they were looking after him. But they certainly... He was allowed to reside in his own home, he was allowed to operate the supposed security system there on his own. There was no independent surveillance of him and he was still running a drug operation, drug trafficking business.
2: OK, so she wasn't surprised that he was killed. But given she was inextricably bound up in this case, she must have a theory. Who do you think killed the Hodsons? Um Nicola Gobbo did answer my question. She does believe she knows who killed the Hodsons. For legal reasons, I can't tell you what she thinks because she has no hard evidence to back up her belief. And do you have any proof of that?
1: No, not directly, other than, other than um, you know, putting the pieces of jigsaw together in my own head from bits of... Conversation with people, briefs of evidence, um, and circumstantial evidence, and sorry, and a genuine, a genuine belief that is a very dangerous man capable of murder.
2: I also asked Nicola if she'd testify in court. So after all this, after all that you've been through, you'd you'd be willing to testify. to to help finally solve the murders of the Hodsons?
1: Well, if I was subpoenaed, yes. Um, I mean, I I don't... I'm I'm not about to invent a reason why I can't give evidence.
2: Out of all the potential suspects in this case, and there are a lot of them, the only man ever charged with arranging the murder of the Hodsons was Paul Dale. He was charged alongside a gun for hire called Rod Collins, who was alleged to have carried out the hit. But the police case hinged on the word of an unreliable witness who had his own incentives to tell police what they wanted to hear. And in any case, that witness was murdered in jail before the court case, which is a whole other story for a later episode. Long story short, the murder charges were dropped. OK, take That's your seat. When I finally meet up with Paul, he's on the publicity tour for a book he's written. It's a book that details his version of this whole saga. I'm surprised he's chosen to run the media gauntlet yet again.
0: My wife was dead set against it. So I've had a lot of grief.
2: (laughs) He's a heavy set man with a standard cop haircut, short back and sides and an intense stare that's broken only occasionally by nervous laughter. Paul Dale has always vehemently denied any involvement in the burglary or the Hodson murders. He says Hodson was a liar who just pointed the finger at him to win a better deal for himself. And he says he didn't steal or leak the blue file that allegedly outed Terry Hodson.
0: I've been through hell and back over the blue folder. Um, I didn't steal the blue folder and I didn't release it to the underworld.
2: Paul Dale says Victoria Police itself outed Hodson as an informer by charging him alongside cops.
0: I blame Victoria Police big time for his death, their deaths, because the moment they charged me, he was outed big time.
2: He says he never met up with Carl Williams on a building site. He admits he spoke to Carl on occasion, because as a cop he had to. That was his job.
0: So it was no different to go and meeting with any other suspect... Um, Target.
2: So why would he ask Nicola to put him on the phone to Carl on a boozy night out at Crown Casino? And do you remember what you spoke to Carl Williams about?
0: There was really nothing to it other than, how you going, how are you, mate? That sort of thing.
2: How long was it for, do you remember?
0: 30 seconds.
2: Okay. Paul's view is that he was charged because the police were desperate. They were embarrassed. One of their cops had broken into a drug house two of their informers had been murdered. They wanted to parade a big scalp before the media to show they'd weeded out the corruption. And they decided Paul Dale was the trophy they needed at any cost. He even says some of this stuff, like the phone call at the casino, might have been done to frame him. You say that that phone call might have been a set-up, correct?
0: That's quite possible, yes.
2: My question with that is... This phone call happened in February, but the Hodson's weren't murdered until three months later. So why would they be trying to set up something, set you up for something that hadn't happened yet?
0: Pretty much any contact that related to Nicola and Carl or Nicola and the Hodson's, I look back on now and I do wonder whether there was what was happening in the background. So I'm a bit paranoid about all of that.
2: I ask him outright about the murders of Terry and Christine Hodson. Did you have anything to do with it, um, either including organisation or knowledge of it?
0: No, I didn't. Um, And the the really frustrating part of that is, I've got some really good ideas, I've got some really good, certainly theories, and I think if those theories had been investigated correctly, you'd probably see that that murder was solved now. It is such a shame.
2: There were others with compelling motives, Terry Hodson had been ratting on drug dealers for years. Did one of them take revenge? Carl Williams had an even stronger motive. He'd learned there was a hit out on him and that big bucks were offered to Terry Hodson to carry it out. Did Carl
0: get in first? Those two good perfect examples. The investigation was never an open investigation. It was just solely targeted at me from day dot.
2: Who do you think did it?
0: Oh, well, I'm not going to say it. Here.
2: I try again a couple of times, but he won't share his theories with me.
0: You've got to look at people with motivation and capability. You can look at Paul Dale. Did he have motivation? Well, Hodson's given evidence Arguably, him. yes. so arguably, yes. yes. And I understand that. I'd live with that.
2: Police worked on the Hodson murders for the better part of a decade and got no results. For Nicola Gobbo, the fallout from the case would continue. We'll come back to that in later episodes. For now, all you need to know is that this whole thing left Nicola feeling worn out and disenchanted. In that police interview with her right back in 2004, just after the Hodson murders, you can already hear it. She's already sick of the drama and everyone involved. Part of the
1: reason why I'm sick of all these people, because they're all, they're all talking to each other they're all, the, the misinformation is going on at 100 miles an hour um, and it potentially puts people's
2: lives in danger. Until this point, it's like she couldn't help getting into the thick of it. Ever since she was a kid, if she was doing something, she was doing it at 150%. But now, talking to everyone, knowing everything, being everywhere at once, she was spent.
1: Well, criminal law is not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And that's part of my desire to get out of it.
2: She says that over the years she's even heard that people wanted to have her killed. There's
0: lots of rumours. Yeah,
1: Apparently there was a contract on me at some point, so...
0: Right.
1: I see neither of you are surprised.
0: Oh, I haven't heard
1: about it, but... Um. It's reached a stage where nothing would surprise anymore. Mm.
2: I can see why she was thinking of walking away. Honestly, I don't know how Nicola Gobbo was even functioning. I don't know how she kept track of it all, and who she told what, or what she had to pretend she didn't know. It makes me tired just thinking about it. You've already heard in the last episode how she helped a hitman roll on Carl Williams. Well, that was happening at the same time as all of this. By now you're probably wondering, why was she doing all this? Why did she have her fingers in so many pies? Was it really just to help all her clients? The Royal Commission has struggled with the same questions.
0: Look, the reality is you weren't operating as a legal practitioner, you weren't operating as a barrister, you were uh, operating as an accumulator of information, uh, um, either for yourself or for other people.
1: Isn't that the situation? Yeah, I can't disagree with that.
2: She once told Terry Hodson, when you're walking a tightrope, The only way to keep your balance is to play both sides against the middle. So maybe she was playing everyone off against each other to somehow protect herself.
1: Could I see my way out of the forest through the trees back then? No, I couldn't. And was I accumulating information and on one level trying to impress people around me? Um, Yes, I was.
2: When I step back from all the detail, I keep coming back to a much simpler theory about what drove Nicola Gobbo. Maybe she just wanted to please everyone.
1: It was a desire to want to help. So yeah, it was all it, I felt pressure from all around and you're right, I should have, you know, I should have walked away from all of them.
2: But she didn't walk away. Instead, she just kept going until she collapsed. Just three weeks after she was interviewed by the Homicide Squad, she had a life-threatening stroke. On the next episode of The Informer, Nicola Gobbo crosses the Rubicon, the point of no return.
1: I can vividly remember thinking, I just can't get going, can't do this anymore. Feeling I, I had wanted some way
2: out. She signs herself up to be a police informer. Season two of Trace, The Informer, is hosted by me, Rachel Brown. My reporting partner is Josie Taylor. Supervising producer for post-production is Tim Roxborough. Our producer is Yasmin Parry. Producer for the 7.30 interview was Chris Gillette. Camera, photos and sound on that interview by Greg Nelson. We get production support from Will Ockenden. Fact checking and research by Alexander Tai. And our sound design and theme composition was done by Martin Peralta. Additional music by Seapelt, Nicole Carroll, Jacob Richards, R-Domain, Land Systems, Most Few, Lincoln J.K. Webber, Edo and Arnold, Brendan Warner and Martin Peralta. If you like Trace, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they land.